Last Lord's Day, I taught you from our continuing verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. And I want, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. If you were with us last time, and for those of you who were not, we're working our way methodically, continually through the book of Proverbs, and we are an eyelash away from finishing Proverbs 30 and entering into the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31. The Lord has been good to us and so very kind in allowing us by His providence to continue on as we've studied together. And you remember last time we discussed four very, very small but exceedingly wise creatures from Proverbs 30, verses 24 to 28. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The Shephanim, the rock badgers, are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet is in king's palaces. You remember that I said to you that these are four very small beasts, very small creatures that God has created, and yet even though in their smallness they're able to compensate for anything like that in God's design with their ingenuity and their creativity, again by God's wonderful providence, so that they are able to live in this world under His command, and they're able to survive. And you remember I said that those four small but exceedingly wise creatures are able to give us four crucial life lessons about how we ought to live our Christian lives. And we went through that in detail last time. For this morning's hour, I want us to take verses 29 to 31. And I want us to see, in contrast to these four very small creatures, yet who are exceedingly wise, four more creatures that Augur, the author of the book of Proverbs in chapter 30, gives us so that we might continue to learn from nature. Uh, This is sort of another National Geographic sermon so that we might be able to understand what God's Word has to say to us from this portion of Scripture. You know, one of the things that is incredibly, and I would say sometimes very difficultly portrayed in Scripture, is what is the meaning of the text. Of course, the words are there, black words on a white page, but what do they mean? What is their intent? And I would submit to you that one of the things that Augur is doing in this chapter, the only chapter in the book of Proverbs that he has penned, 
He is giving us these life lessons so that we might understand the intent of how to live Christianly. How to live according to the glory of God. How to be a believer in this world. And sometimes He takes nature and He gives us the opportunity, does God, to learn even from His created order. And He's done that in this section of Proverbs 30, and we saw that last time. And He wants to give us four more creatures so that we might learn how to respond rightly in life. The question is, when we look at our Bibles and we read something like verses 29 to 31, what does it mean? What does it mean? Here's what it says. Proverbs 30, verses 29 to 31. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk or in their stride. The lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. The strutting rooster. The male goat also, or the he-goat. And a king when his army is with him. What does that mean? If anything, the message from this morning is both intended to get at the very meaning of that passage, but also in another sense to show you how to understand hermeneutics, the science and art of biblical interpretation. How to understand language, lexical meaning, the meaning of certain words in a particular passage, and history. What did it mean to the culture at that time? In other words, what I hope to show for you today is not only the meaning of this text, as difficult as it's going to be, but also to show you how you and I might be better Bible students. How we might be able, through language and culture and history and grammar, understand a particular difficult biblical text so that you and I are worshiping God through being better able to understand our Bibles. And sometimes it isn't easy. This is one of those. Believe it or not, even though you might not be able to see it initially on the page, this is a somewhat difficult te text to understand what Augur means by what he says. I'll show you what I mean by that. For in this passage, there might be two very different meanings to what Augur is driving toward when he teaches his sons, either his real sons or his spiritual sons. They're listed back up at the beginning of this section of the chapter, Ithiel and Eucal, and he's discipling them. And what he's telling them in this text is somewhat difficult to ascertain. In fact, it may mean one thing or it may mean it's very opposite. It can't mean both at the same time, assuredly, but it may mean one thing or it may mean the opposite of that and we have to dig in and find out which one we think it is because it's hard, it's going to be difficult. Well, we're going to take a shot at it this morning. What I want to do is show you what it may mean first, all right? Look back at your Bibles at Proverbs 30, beginning in verse 29. 
He says, does Augur, there are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. First of all, he's using again that Hebraic stylistic device by emphasis in saying three, no four. He's done that already a couple of times, and here he does it again. There are three things, no four, which are stately in their march. Or, as I think Bruce Waltke, I think, does a good job of translating this, three things that excel, excel in their stride. Four things which excel in their movement. So four things he's talking about who are doing well as they walk around the earth. That seems to be the intent of what verse 29 means. I'm going to give you, does Augur, four things that seem to walk around the earth in a stately manner. They have a noble gait, a G-A-I-T, a noble walk. Uh, they are, these four things, something that you should potentially emulate. Uh, they have power. We might even use the word, and you're going to hear it several times this morning, confidence. They excel because they have confidence. In other words, we ought to emulate uh, these four creatures uh, because they have some things on the ball. They're confident in what they do. And he's discipling his sons, and he may be saying, here is what I want you to know about four things on the earth in which you should follow because you should emulate their example. And what are they? Look at verse 30. The first is the lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. He gives first and foremost sort of the pinnacle of the animal kingdom, the animal creation, and he talks about the lion. And he says about the lion that he is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. In other words, the lion is the king of the kingdom. The lion's not afraid of anything. And there is not anything for which he retreats. That's what he says. Does not retreat before any. In other words, the lion is bold. The lion is confident. In fact, Scripture itself uses an example of the lion for this very purpose. To talk about boldness and to talk about confidence. Look back at Proverbs chapter 28 verse 1. Proverbs 28 verse 1. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. It likens us, the righteous, to being as bold as a lion. In other words, the wicked, they flee. They, they even flee when no one is pursuing. They are, of course, those, the unbelievers who are always looking around their shoulder, and they're even fleeing at times when nobody around is pursuing. They're paranoid, some psychologists might say. But the righteous are bold, and they are bold as a lion. King David, bold himself as a lion. 
spoke in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 23, these words about Saul and Jonathan. He sings a dirge about them. And he says in 2 Samuel 1, 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. What's his point? Well, I believe ultimately Augur's point about boldness and about confidence here in verse 30 is to point to the ultimate example of a king who's not, of course, a part of the animal kingdom, but is a, point, is, is a part of the human family. And that king, that human king, is listed for us at the end of verse 31. And a king, when his army is with him. In other words, I believe that the three creatures in the animal kingdom is pointing ultimately toward the human king and we're supposed to derive a principle of life about the king as he is likened to these creatures. And the first one that he's likened to is the lion and the lion is bold. The lion is confident. In other words, just as the lion is bold and confident, he doesn't retreat before any other member of the animal kingdom. And there certainly are bigger animals than the lion, but apparently God has created him as the pinnacle in the animal kingdom to withstand any ferocious attack and he will fight to the death. Just as that lion is bold and confident, so a king, he says in verse 31, is bold when his army is with him. That's the lion. Notice what he says next. Verse 31, the strutting rooster. The strutting rooster. Have you ever seen a rooster strutting around? He looks confident, right? I wish I could mimic what the strutting rooster does, but as soon as I would try, you wouldn't listen to anything else I would say in the sermon. You'd go out of there saying, wasn't he looking very, very funny and foolish? The strutting rooster is exactly that. He rules the roost, no pun intended. The rooster is apparently that kind of animal who takes care of all of the other chickens. The rooster, that cock, that, that male bird is the one who is ruling the roost. He's in charge. He protects. He guides. Now, I do have to admit that, again, one of the difficulties of this particular passage is that the Hebrew term that's used here is very, very significant but very, very obscure. In fact, even in the King James Version, it uses not the word rooster, but what word? Greyhound. Greyhound. And in fact, there are several other animals that have been used through the centuries to describe whom Agur is attempting to identify. So someone says, well, a strutting rooster is not like a greyhound. That's true. And the difficulty is because we don't know exactly from the Hebrew word that he uses here exactly what animal he's referring to. But I think based upon the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and many of the ancient versions, not just because they're closer to the original, but certainly by way of the generations, that it probably is referring to the rooster, the cock, and not referring to another animal. But that's entirely a guess. It's a guess on everybody's part. We just don't know. 
But if it is the strutting rooster, the same principle applies. He's bold. He's confident. He's in charge. And just like a strutting rooster, the king, the ruler over his people, is there to guide and to protect and to lead. And he must be empowered to do so. And when he does so, he's so much in charge that he is like the lion and the rooster. He is there and everyone knows that he's in charge and that he's their leader and that they're answerable to him and the analogy fits. And then thirdly, Augur says in verse 31 in the middle part, the male goat also. The male goat. The he goat. Jeremiah 50 verse 8 refers to this animal when it says, be also like male goats at the head of the flock. And so that signals for us that the he goat, the male goat, was in charge of the herd. And so, if this is the point of Augur's message to his sons, then he's telling us, by way of secondary application, that we ought to learn from these creatures, just like we learned from the ant and the snake and the locust and the lizard, that even though they were very small, they were exceedingly wise, and we are taught life principles out of their experiences and watching them, observing them on the earth, so we should learn from these three other creatures. We ought to learn very much from the lion and his boldness and confidence. He'll never back down. He's the kind of leader for the animal kingdom that the animal kingdom needs desperately. And we ought to also take the example of the strutting rooster. He's in charge of the roost. He's in charge of all of the chickens. They all know that he is the one who's the male cock of the herd. They all know that he's in charge. And also the he-goat. He's in charge of the herd. He's empowered. And I think potentially now, the message that we are to receive from these three examples is when we get to verse 31. And a king, when his army is with him. That that king is emblematic as seen through the analogies of life as we observe nature with the lion with the cock and with the male goat. Now that that could be what Augur's referring to. And that what's coming out of this for his sons, Ithiel and Eucal, is the concept of confidence. You must be confident. Now here's where we might be able to say to ourselves, it diverges not from self-confidence, not from overconfidence, not from confidence in yourself and in your own abilities, but confidence in God as He has called you and as He equips you and as He gifts you for service in His kingdom. Right? Augur is not saying by any stretch of the imagination that when you look at these three creatures in God's kingdom, that they're on their own, that their confidence is in their own ability not on your life. What he's striving for, if this is indeed what he teaches, is that there is a confidence in the one who is ultimately that one who gives you all that you need, including your ability, including your gifts, for the confidence in the doing of your job. Let's say you're a leader. And everybody's a leader in some sense. Even if that means ultimately you're the leader of your own soul. 
That you ought to be like Proverbs 28.1, as a righteous person, bold as a lion. You ought to be like the strutting rooster who makes sure that no predator comes in to the hen house, if we could bring it up to our present day, and who messes with the chicks. He protects the hen. He protects the chicks. The strutting rooster, that male cock, is the one who is involved in leading and will even give up his own life if the chicken hawk comes in order to destroy and to eat. And you ought to be like the male goat who leads the herd, even at the expense, potentially, of his own life for the sake of the herd being delivered safely to their destination. In other words, have confidence in the God who equips you and gives you the ability to do what you do in life. And everybody has gifts, and everybody has abilities, and God is calling upon you to perform those abilities that He has given you and the task that He's given you for the job that you have to do. Not confidence in yourself, but confidence in God, which empowers you to be bold. Isn't that the life of King David as we see it unfolding? Wasn't King David, even as a young boy, even with a single slingshot and only one stone, felling Goliath of Gath? And the point of that story, my friends, is not in David. It's in David's God. It's David's confidence in God. David's boldness. You remember what he said? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's thumbing his nose at the God of Israel. My friends, that is boldness. That is boldness. But it's not boldness in himself. In himself, he has no power. In and of himself and his gifts and abilities, he has no ability to be bold for God, for Yahweh God, for in and of himself, he's a little shepherd boy. That's all he is. But in God's power and in God's time frame and because of God's gifts and because of God's ability, he has the ability to do great exploits for God, the God of Israel. And even when David was being pursued by Saul, David had a couple of opportunities, did he not, to fell Saul, but did not. And in those caves, he had the opportunity to kill the king and he chose not to do so. He had boldness and confidence that he could do so, but he didn't want to violate one of God's principles. Lay not your hand on God's anointed. I think that's the point. If in fact this is what Augur is driving toward, the point is have confidence, not in yourself, but have confidence, have boldness. And I think that's something very much that Ithiel and Eucal need to know. In fact, so much so that when you come into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in verses 13 and 14, what does it say to the men of the church? Not just leaders, but the men of the church. All of these are representative of males, male leadership especially. And what does it say in 1 Corinthians 16, 13? Be strong. Act like men. And the first thing you say from a text like that, the first question that arises in your mind is, well then how do men act? They act courageously. They act in a strong manner. In a word, confidence. Confidence. In another word, boldness. You are bold, especially as a male, especially as a leader, especially as Ithiel and Eucal. You are to be a bold, 
confident, empowered son, father, husband, leader, Christian, whoever you are, in God's ability to work through you for bold exploits for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That could be exactly the point of the message today. And some of you say, sounds good to me. Let's close our Bibles. Let's go home. That may not be what Augur is referring to. You say, what? Well, it could actually be something very different from that. You say, how so? I mean, doesn't, doesn't it, it say here, doesn't it presume for us that this is the teaching? I mean, isn't it true that in Proverbs chapter 30, Augur is saying something like this in verse 2, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, apart from divine revelation, I am nothing. But with divine revelation, I know all things. Doesn't he give an affirmation in verses 5 and 6? Every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Isn't he driving toward this idea of confidence? Don't have confidence in yourself. Don't believe that you can know God apart from divine revelation. Don't think that you can follow God, know anything about Him, unless He reveals Himself to you. And He does. And you better not add to His words, lest you be proved a liar. In other words, have confidence, but have confidence in God, in His revelation, in His Word. It's eternal. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Confidence is all over this passage. This, this chapter seems to be bleeding out for us to say, have confidence in God, not in yourself, not in your assumption. You're stupid in and of yourself because you don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. But when you have that knowledge, you have all that you need. Do great exploits, Ithiel and you, Cal. Could be. And I want to be an able expositor. I want to be able to tell you from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, what is the intent of this passage? Could be that. And if it is that, that's the part of the sermon you take home. That's the part of the sermon you can apply. But it could actually mean something very different. Let me show you. Look back at chapter 30. You know when he says, there are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk, that word, stately, yes, it's, it's talking about doing well, it's talking about walking the walk in a good way, but it also could be interpreted a bit differently. Maybe not stately in the sense of the positive virtue of being empowered and confident and bold, but maybe Augur is driving toward something like this, yes, those four small creatures, that, that ant, very small, the snake, the locust, the insect, the lizard, they're all in that sense very, very small but exceedingly wise. And now I want to announce to you in the next list of four, even though they appear stately in their gait, and even though the strutting rooster... 
walks and talks a big game, Augur says, I'm actually warning you about them. I'm actually warning you about them. I'm actually saying to you, watch out. Be careful. Listen to one commentator, John Kitchen. He writes this word. Most likely, these four characters are not held up in order that we might emulate them, but rather as a negative example of how not to carry ourselves. In other words, yes, it is true that in the animal kingdom, the lion is bold and he will not back down from any. And yes, it is true that the rooster does his strutting all the time. And yes, it is most assuredly true that the male goat is high and mighty. But you better watch out. Because if you have a human king who does the same, oh, that may not be so good. In fact, what we may have done is we may have moved from the confidence realm to the cocky realm, with my apologies to the male cock. We have to understand the possibility that this text is rather teaching something very different from confidence because we may have slipped into the realm, or at least Augur is warning us, about cockiness, pride. I mean, they look good. There's pomp. There's pomposity. There's arrogance. There's pride. And maybe what Augur is doing is saying, Ithiel, you cow, look at these four very small creatures, exceedingly wise. I grant you that. And here's the life lessons I want you to learn from them. But I also want to give you four other creatures, including the pinnacle of such, that is the human king. And I want to tell you that a ruler, both in the animal realm and in the people realm, they look good, they look mighty, they look powerful, they look like they have the kind of confidence that you would want to emulate. But I'm warning you, son, there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness and you better watch out you better be careful you say I'm not sure show me well look in your Bibles at Proverbs 19 verse 12 when it talks about the lion in other words do we have any hermeneutical ground in this very book of Proverbs itself now I, I grant you that Augur is the author of chapter 30, and Solomon is the author of uh, the first 29 chapters of Proverbs, but it's in the same book. And in chapter 19, verse 12, notice what it says. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. You say, well, that's really only teaching that the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion in the sense that you better not be in the way of the wrath of the king as though you were doing something wrong and that you were being punished by a righteous king who's bringing the righteous wrath upon you. And it could mean that. You want to be in his favor because that's like the dew of the grass. You don't want to be in his wrath because that's like the roaring of a lion. However, look at chapter 20, verse 2. Proverbs 20, verse 2. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. See, yeah, but it still doesn't 
quite hit it there. Yes, it's likening the king to a lion. And yes, if you anger him, you're going to forfeit your life. In other words, there may be capital punishment involved if you provoke him. But it still doesn't say quite that there's anything wrong with likening the king to a lion, at least negatively so. How about chapter 28? You remember in verse 1, the righteous are as bold as a lion. But in verse 15, and this is clearly negative, clearly likening itself to the lion in the animal kingdom. Chapter 28, verse 15, like a roaring lion and a rushing bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And I suspect that if Ithiel and Eucal were reading any other Proverbs and they came across that one, it would be uppermost in their mind as they're now discipled by Father Augur. You better not be a wicked ruler. If you are, it's like a roaring lion. In fact, even the next verse, a leader who is a great oppressor lacks understanding, but he who hates unjust gain will prolong his days, prolong his days as a king. I suspect that what Augur, even though this is a somewhat obscure text that we're trying to unpack, might actually be referring not positively to confidence, but negatively to cockiness. And he says, don't be a wicked, unjust king. Don't be a lousy ruler for whom you might, even as a prowling lion or bear, be a wicked ruler and gain your comeuppance. In fact, it might even be in the text ourselves. Look at verse 31. And a king when his army is with him. Now, what does that phrase mean, with an army who is with him? That last phrase, very, very difficult to translate. In fact, some of the other translations have it somewhat quite differently. I mentioned Bruce Waltke a moment ago. He translates it this way, a king no one dares to resist. In other words, watch out, watch out for the king who's so drunk with his own power that no one dares to resist him. Watch out for that kind of king. Maybe it's a warning. Maybe they're in priestly, kingly training. Or maybe he's just saying, watch out for the kings who are ultimately going to be over you because there may be one who, like this supposed mighty lion who's actually out to grab what he can grab. He's like the strutting rooster, proud and arrogant. He's like the male goat who crosses over the line from confidence to cockiness. It may actually be a king that no one dares resist because he rules with an arbitrary, capricious iron fist. I warn you. I warn you about him. In fact, if you're following me in the ESV itself, following the KJV, you'll notice an alternate translation there that says, and a king against whom there is no rising up. And those kinds of translations might actually suggest not a positive idea with a king and an army who is with him. Maybe it's this. A king, he looks very good, a lot of pomp, 
lot of circumstance because when he looks behind him, he's got the whole army there. When he's got the whole army, he's just downright cocky. And you better be warned. You ought to be warned about a king who serves like that. You say, contextually, because remember now, we're learning lessons in Bible hermeneutics. Contextually, how can I know that that is the interpretation that has more weight to it than the other? Because in a sense, confidence and cockiness are two different things. And I grant you there's a fine line sometimes between them, but surely, how can I know this is the right one? Well, look at with me through the chapter. Notice, in the first part of this chapter, you have Augur, who's identifying himself, giving an introduction before we get to verse 10, and notice what he says, verse 7, two things I ask of you, do not refuse me before I die, keep deception and lies far from me. What deceptions and lies? What he's just said in the earlier verses. I don't, I don't know God apart from divine revelation. I'm more stupid than any man. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to be a humble man. I don't understand anything apart from God revealing it to me. And what I want you to do, Lord, is I want you to keep me from lies and deceptions. I want to be a godly, holy, humble man. I believe in your word. I believe every word of God is tested. I believe you're a shield to protect me for which I can gain refuge. This is a humble man here. I don't want to profane the name of my God. And now look at the contrast. He says, there are those who are opposite of the man I'm trying to be, and I'll show you. Verse 12, there is a kind, a kind of man, a type of person, a category of people who are pure in their own eyes, verse 12, yet are not washed from their filthiness. Verse 13, there is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. Ah, that's a contextual clue. We're talking about Augur who wants to be a holy, godly, humble man, and he's warning Ithiel and Eucal about men who are the exact opposite. Notice verse 22. He says in verse 21, There are three things the earth quakes under, yea, even four, in which it cannot bear up. In other words, this turns the whole social order upside down. And I'll tell you what the first one is, he says, verse 22, under a slave when he becomes king. There's another, another contextual clue. And a fool when he is satisfied with, fool, uh, with food. What is this slave when he becomes king? In other words, it's an officer. Someone who doesn't belong in the office of kingship. Someone who's not prepared. You remember when we went through that. It's somebody who shouldn't be there. He shouldn't be ruling. He's not ready. He's not trained. And yet, he's been elevated. It's the Peter principle. He's been elevated far beyond his ability, far beyond his capacity, and also a fool when he is satisfied with food. In other words, he doesn't trust God for the daily sustenance of his life, and because of that, 
both the slave, the officer, who's in a position he shouldn't be in, and a fool who's not satisfied with everything from God. It's the opposite of what Agur wants to be. It's the opposite of what he wants his disciples to be. They are proud, and they are arrogant. And he might be saying in verse 31, and that's that king. And in fact, he looks good. He looks mighty. He looks like the lion. He looks like the rooster. He looks like the goat. But I'm telling you, he's proud and arrogant. And when he's got his army with him, he's the big man, and nobody can push him down. And in fact, I'm warning you against him. And maybe the clincher, verses 32 and 33, right next to the context. And he says in verse 32, right after he talks about that king, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth, for the churning of milk produces butter, and pressing the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. The king he has his army with him. No one can resist. He's striding along. He's marching with his army. And he is in charge. In fact, he's large and in charge. And Agra says, watch out for a fellow like that. The very next verse. If you've been foolish in exalting yourself, put your hand on your mouth. Oh! <gasps> This may contextually tell us that we're not talking just about confidence. And we're not just talking about confidence in God who works through you as a bold leader. You've crossed the line. And you're a king who's cocky. Is that what Augur means? Other than what I've told you this morning, I have no idea. We don't know. The language, the history, the culture create such a gap between what they experienced and what they knew and what we experience and what we know can't be dogmatic. And when I said earlier, because surely some of you are going to say, well, I think it's both. Well, it can't be both because it can't be both at the same time. It's either one. Or it's the other. And my preference is, I lean toward the latter. That what has happened is confidence, based on the context of the whole chapter, has moved very eerily, very subtly, from confidence to cockiness. And are there myriads of examples in our Bible of leaders who have been very confident, started out confident, started out confident in God, and who have moved from that confidence, even in their boldness, into a cocky behavior, proud, arrogant, so much so that they've been exalting themselves. Remember Herod, Acts 12? This is a man who's not just a man, but a God. Boy, you could, you could wake up in the morning, put your robe on, get on the throne... Have people walking around saying, He's not a man, but a God. You sort of say, I like that. I like that a lot. In fact, I seemingly can do no wrong. In fact, all of my decisions are good ones. And when they're not, it's somebody else's fault. It's never mine. I just didn't have the right information. I just didn't have the right counselors. I didn't have the right advisors. Okay, get them out, kill them, bring in somebody else. 
right? You see it over and over and over again in our Bibles. Confidence, fine line, can move itself tragically to cockiness. Which is it? Well, maybe, not for them, but for us, as we apply it to our lives, maybe we say to ourselves, I also tread the very fine line. Confidence. Confidence in Christ. Confidence in the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1, I am shocked that you have so quickly deserted the gospel for another gospel. And somebody could come along and say, Paul, that sounds pretty arrogant. That's, that's pretty cocky. I mean, how do you really know that, that the gospel that you're portraying that, that you're proclaiming is the gospel. And how don't you know, how do you know that there aren't other gospels out there that are just as valid as yours? And we hear that a lot in 21st century life, don't we? And Paul says it this way. I tell you, one of the reasons why it is the true gospel is that I didn't receive it from man. I got it as a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's another. Here's another. And you may have missed it when we read through Galatians 1. Here's another. Am I a servant of man? I'm a servant of God. If I were a servant of man, I wouldn't be proclaiming this gospel boldly and confronting you that you have so quickly deserted it. Because that's not going to be a popular message. That, that won't go over well. But I'm no longer a servant of man. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ who's commissioned me to preach a gospel. And I'm telling you that through the boldness and the confidence of the proclamation of what I myself have received as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ, that if anybody should come to you with a different gospel, let him be damned, accursed, consigned to judgment. My friends, that is bold. That is bold. John the Baptist. It is not right, king, that you should have her. She is somebody else's wife. Bold. Got his head chopped off. That's confidence, my friends. And are there not with the confidences of Paul and John the Baptist... And David and many others, a myriad of other examples of those who went from confidence right into cockiness. And who took all of those good gifts and all of that, that wonderful God-given ability and they ran off in their own direction and their cockiness brought them low. Oh, I think that's probably a message for us. Is it confidence? Might be. Is it cockiness? It might be. You choose. Do a, an inventory in your own life and ask yourself the question, am I living in confidence in the Christ-exalting, God-glorifying confidence of doing great exploits for Jesus Christ, not in my own strength, and not by my own ingenuity, and not by my own creativity, but in God who gives me the boldness to speak out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the confidence I have 
But I, like Paul says, I will not do anything. I will not proclaim anything. I will not have a ministry, Romans 15, at all, except that which Christ accomplishes through me. That's confidence. And there are myriad examples of those who had that confidence, who assumed that confidence, who seemingly worked in that confidence until it was proven that by their pride and their arrogance, they moved from confidence to cockiness and they were brought low, Nebuchadnezzar. They were brought low, Saul. They were brought low. How many times do you read in the history books of Israel, and this king did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. They were cocky. Even Solomon, 29 chapters of Proverbs, and all of the great wisdom, no man before him, no man since, this, this man who was the wisdom given to him as a gift by God. And Solomon tubed spiritually. He got cocky, got careless. Boy, that's a message for us, my friends. That is a message for us. You say, what is that message? Turn as we close to Jeremiah 17. Here's the message. In one verse, here's how it can be summed up. Jeremiah 17. In one passage, it may give us the key between the choice of the two. Here it is. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in whom? Mankind. That's cocky. And makes flesh his strength. Always think about those guys working out in the gyms across our land with the big floor-to-ceiling mirrors so that after they do a couple of sets, what do they do? They go right over to the mirror. Right? Now look, the strutting rooster and the and the weight fellow, don't, don't do that. And whose heart turns away from the Lord. What's he going to be like? Verse 6, he'll be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Folks, that's dry. That's arid. That's confidence goes into cockiness. Trusts in himself. He prostitutes all of the good gifts of God. But, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Look at that. Subjectively, he trusts in the Lord. And objectively, the Lord can be trusted. What's he like? Verse 8, For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. That's confidence. That is pure, God-honoring, Christ-exalting confidence. Not cockiness. I had a seminary professor, Dr. James Roscoe, and he was one of the most humble men I've ever met. 
And he would say frequently, even as men who were training for the ministry, who were trained to try to interpret and teach the Bible accurately, and because we knew so much, because of our ardent study, he would constantly say this in the classroom, Men, I want you to be confident, but not cocky. I can hear it in my ears to this day. It was 25, 30 years ago. It's a fine line. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says it, and he says it so well, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Then he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. That's confidence in God. It's not cockiness. So, then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. God does it. That's confidence in Him. Not cocky. And I admit, there's a fine line there. Because sometimes maybe in your own heart, you, will, you won't know which is which. The Lord knows. And sometimes even the dark recesses of the human heart doesn't even know. But God knows. And He'll reveal that. You ask Him, do I have confidence or cockiness? Lord, teach me, help me, show me. Make it my prayer that it is not me or anyone else, but God who causes the growth. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we are... We are not to be confident in ourselves. We ought to beware of cockiness. And if there are those of you who this morning have slipped from sure-footed confidence in God and His Word into the realm of sinful man-produced cockiness, confess it to the Lord. Seek to do great exploits for the kingdom of Christ without this man-centered self-confidence. Believe God for Christ-exalting, Spirit-generated confidence in the Lord. He'll give it to you. And then you'll do great things for which you will eternally glorify Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In whose name we pray, amen.